Back into the book of Habakkuk, you can say Habakkuk if you want. It's the eighth book of the 12 minor prophets. And as we've talked every week, I just like to hammer this stuff in. Three chapters, 56 verses. It's a short book written presumably by the prophet Habakkuk around 600 B.C. And we talked last week in chapter 1, starts out with Habakkuk's complaint. And what he's complaining about, what he's trying to bring to God's attention and with these questions of God is he sees a society in crisis. He talks about lawlessness. And that lawlessness biblically is, is, has to do with the ceremonial Jewish laws, certainly, that the temple's been neglected, their worship's been neglected, but also in civil laws, things like violence and crime and fraud and oppression and injustice. And what he sees around him is a society who has cast off restraint. And he engages God and wonder why God is allowing these things to continue, why the wicked are allowed to prosper and the righteous even to suffer at their hands. The Lord responds with his intent. We talked about this last week too. His, so God essentially answers that complaint and he says, I'm going to fix this by bringing the Chaldeans against your nation. And we talked about what a rat, that was not the answer that Habakkuk probably expected or even desired. And we saw that from his uh, continued engagement with God about that. That God was going to bring this cruel, idolatrous Gentile nation to judge his own people. And that seemed inconsistent and terrifying to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk would go on after that response to question the Lord, presents a case essentially against what God is proposing in this, kind of, kind of pointing out the inconsistency, pointing out that it, it just didn't make sense to him what God was intending to do. Essentially saying, you are holy, righteous, and pure, and how can you allow a sinful people to come and judge your people? And there was that example that he gives where he speaks of the absurdity of one who would worship his fishing net. Basically, uh, um, talking about how the ruler of Babylon is, ga- is going to gather God's people like fish, like the crawling things in the ocean, and he's going to be allowed to prosper in that. And um, after that, we'll, when we get into chapter 2, we're going to see he gets to this point where after, again, hearing from God, presenting his case, he then resolves to wait and see what God will answer. And that's in Habakkuk 2, verse 1. And it says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, meaning what God will say to him, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk says, I will take my stand. I will look out to see, and based on that, what my answer to those things should be. I'm going to be informed by God. I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to see what he has to say, and then I'm going to determine how I should answer those things. And when we seek the Lord, I think that's really important to be expectant, to be aware and circumspect, and to be prepared. I see that he has a place here that he's prepared to go to. Right? It says, my watch post. I'm going to station myself on the tower. There's this place 
And I think he's prepared in his heart. He's open and tender and trusting in God's love. He's prepared in his mind. And I think we need to be prepared in our mind. That's so often where we get attacked in times of trial. Allowing our intellect and our reason to be formed in faith and prepared in spirit to be Christ-like, submitting to God's perfect will. And there's a verse in Hebrews 11.6. A lot of you may know this. It's a famous verse. It says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. See, and that's what Habakkuk's doing. He believes that God exists. A lot of people believe that God exists, right? That's the easy part, I think. Even, even, for, even for the most staunch, you know, anti, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people that are anti-Christian will at least sometimes um, concede that there might be a God, right? There might be a God. We be, they b- might believe that God exists, and we see that a lot in culture. I mean, you know, they do surveys, and the majority of people in the world believe that there's some sort of God. But to believe that he not only exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. To draw near, it's not only a belief that he is, but that there are those rewards awaiting us when we come to him. But for those of us that do, who truly seek, who take their stand and look to see, are those who will receive everything God desires. I think we understand that as Christians, that if we seek God, that we can trust that his will will be completed in our life. The second, the other part of that that I kind of have struggled with in the last couple of years, that we'll receive everything God desires and nothing he does not desire. Does that make sense? Nothing he doesn't desire. I think that's also a great um, truth that faith, you know, it's a big part of faith, that we'll get everything that we need, everything we really, um, that he wants for us, but also that nothing he doesn't. And I love this verse in Psalm 84, 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That's such a great verse. You see this bright, this brightness, right? This sun. We see the protection of God's shield. We see the Lord bestowing favor and honor, saying no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And we understand today those who walk uprightly are simply those who have confess Jesus as their Savior, who walk in faith. We're not talking about someone who does everything perfectly, but one who comes to him in a sincere and a contrite way. So I like to look at this first, this idea, the watch post, the watch post, this lookout tower. And we picture some place, perhaps physically, but certainly spiritually, that gives us that elevated perspective, right? It gives us an elevated perspective. A perspective that's not obstructed by the trials or daily tedium of our lives. Those are the things that we need to get 
above to be able to have that type of view. And I think that's what we see in Habakkuk. I'm going to get above these things that I see, above my culture, above the, the daily trials that I'm dealing with, and I want to see, I want a better view, a better view beyond what even his senses can comprehend. And we've all experienced how being just a little bit higher affords a better view. We picture a little girl on her daddy's shoulders watching the parade. You know, if she's not on her daddy's shoulders, all she's seeing is like pant legs, right? And maybe, and maybe a little section right in front of her, but her dad puts her up on her shoulders, and she can not only see what's right in the front of the parade, she can look down the street, she can see what's coming. She can see what's going by. You know, I have up a, I have a piece of land, and I have a hunting stand on it. And the hunting stand is about, I'd say, maybe, I haven't ever measured it. I always think I'm going to, but I never do. But it's probably 8 to 10 feet high off the ground. And you say, that's not very high, but, I mean, it's, it's just enough. So what we have a lot of the, up there is the pinion pines. And right where this stand is, they're not very big. That's about how tall they are. So it allows you to just basically be above all the trees. The view is dramatically different. Just that little distance above, it allows me to see clouds and storms coming from great distances. And it allows you to see, um, like, let me, anyway, let me back up. Another thing it allows you to do, an elevated position like that is considered strategic in warfare. Taking the high ground spiritually strengthens our position and ensures our victory. Allowing the Lord to put us on his shoulders gives us a better view of what's important and to see the foolishness of chasing after the world and to see what's coming for those who reject him also. And that's the point. That's the thing that... that that the prophets of God, Habakkuk included, that's what they could see. They could see God was showing them, and that's why they had this desire in their heart to reach their people, was that they could see the judgment that was coming because of the choices that they had made. And that's this theme really throughout the prophets. Um, all the prophets have that, not, not exactly like a watchman, but... The prophet Ezekiel, for instance, he's called specifically to be a watchman and to see. And, and with the intent of warning God's people. That's what we see a lot of times too, right? When someone has a watchtower in ancient times, that was something that would be positioned maybe on a city wall. or out, And it was, it was to warn about an invasion or something like that. And God is calling Ezekiel to that position spiritually. And this is what God says to Ezekiel 3 in uh, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And he goes on to say some other things. And in Ezekiel's case, the Lord went so far as to say that if Ezekiel failed to warn somebody, that he would personally be held liable. Are you guys familiar with that passage? It says, if, you don't, if I give you a warning for those people and you don't warn them, their blood I will require at your hands. And that kind of makes sense. If we're about to witness someone being robbed or being hit by a car and we remain silent and let this tragedy occur, 
would we not be complicit? And that's what God is telling Ezekiel, that call, specifically calling Ezekiel to that place in this very graphic way, but I think we all have a degree of that responsibility in our lives for those of us that know Christ, to be, to be that in some way, shape, or form as those opportunities arise. This idea of a watchman is repeated throughout the book of Isaiah. And it's, it's, it's portrayed both positively and negatively in Isaiah. And the Lord would contrast those faithful watchmen who are committed and awake, ready to sound the alarm, compared to those who are asleep at their post. Now, we know in military situations, that's like one of, you know, in some, in some parts of history, that's like a, a fence worthy of death, right? Like falling asleep at your post. But this is what Isaiah 56.10 says, speaking about, you know, kind of culturally where Israel was at during Isaiah's time. It says, His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. And it's this picture of like a guard dog that has fallen asleep and isn't aware of the intruder that he should be barking at. Now, a lot of people, anybody in here have a little tiny dog that barks at like everything? <laughs> so you never know what it's barking about. But <laughs> it could bark, you know, it barks too much. I have these dogs, and my dogs don't really bark a whole lot, very rarely. But at night, um, my female dog, like if she hears, the, it's kind of annoying, if she hears the littlest thing outside, she, she'll jump out of bed and she'll start doing this like, really loud hound bark and we have sometimes we have to open the doors they see there's nobody out there it'll be the wind or something like that but God's giving that picture of this watchman comparing him to a guard dog that essentially isn't doing their job that's going to allow the house or the you know the the place to get broken into now in Habakkuk's case again he's intentional about being ready not only to hear but to respond engage and warn. And that's really all it takes to hear from God. I, I really think that's the simplicity of it for us to, to prioritize that relationship we have with Him. Because there's a lot of stuff talking to us all the time, a lot of stuff trying to get our attention. But if we take that time, if we take Habakkuk's example and say, I'm going to go to some place, whether physically, spiritually, mentally, I'm going to put away those distractions and I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to wait to hear what he has to say. To get to that elevated position and wait. Now we get to the Lord's reply in Habakkuk 2, verse 2. And the first, this is a two-part. Actually, the rest of the verses that we're going to go through are the Lord's reply. But here's the first part. Habakkuk 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. So the first thing he says, I want you to write this down, and not just write it down, but inscribe it on these tablets. What does that remind you of, guys of? What else in Scripture do we see something really important being inscribed on tablets? You know, we think of the Ten Commandments. We think of those tablets that God cut out of the side of Mount Sinai and wrote on with his own finger the law of God that was to be kept as a memorial for the Israelites in the Ark of the Covenant. They were to be perpetually kept 
as that memorial to their people. And that's what, that's what he's instructing Habakkuk to do. Like we've talked about in the book of Habakkuk, it's kind of this private conversation that we're seeing between the prophet and the Lord. But here we see that's not where it's supposed to stay. That's not where he wants it to. It's not just for Habakkuk alone. So the things that God wants is saying to Habakkuk, he wants Habakkuk to share. And that's the what, and he wants to share it in a way that is permanent, that's lasting, as opposed to, you know, some other way you could record it, like on papyrus or, or something that maybe is perishable, saying, inscribe it on these tablets. And he says, make it plain, and that's like, don't use riddles or fancy language. And again, while this prophecy is, is private in a sense, God wants it shared, and that's the way it is with any gift, any revelation, any knowledge or testimony we receive. It's always intended to be shared for the benefit of others, however that may be manifested. And I think that's really important. If we have the privilege of, of understanding something in God's word or something that God does in our life, certainly that's for us but it's also to be shared as an encouragement, and that's, that's why we have the word today. That's what the apostles, you know, that was, their, that was their primary mission with all the things that they had seen and all the miracles and all the years that they walked with Jesus. They could have kept all that to themselves and had a wonderful life and had this wonderful experience and, and kept it to themselves, but that wasn't, that wasn't what the Lord wanted. He wanted them to share that with as many people as possible. And sometimes I'm guilty, I'm, I'm, I'd say often guilty of that. You know, we read the Bible and, and God shows us something and, oh, that's pretty cool. I don't tell anybody about it. Most of the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I might tell my wife, but most of the time she's busy. But like, how else do we, how else do we like share the things that God's given us? And I, I tell you what, if that's our heart, God will give us those opportunities, The last part, that he may run who reads it. And this speaks of running to deliver the message to others. That word has to do with being a herald. Like, it's not, it's not so much that someone's going to run away. It kind, of, it kind of seemed, when I first read it, it kind of seemed like that. Like, you're going to read it and get terrified and run away. But really what that is, is it's like they're going to read it and run to spread the news. To spread the news of this prophecy. That's the idea there. Habakkuk 2.3, God goes on to say, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is a really cool verse. Um, I want to read it from the NIV as well. That's from the ESV. But this is from the NIV, the New International Version. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. It's a little different wording there. But it's when the, the interesting thing, I wanted to pick that verse because it really pulls that, that idea out of what this, what this is saying. And when we see that the end, the end in Habakkuk, that's speaking of, that's a word that is used for the end of all time. 
It's not just the end of this judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. This is the first time we see that word kind of used that way in Scripture. Speaking not only of the impending judgment of Israel by the Babylonians, but of the final end of all time. It's the word, it's spelled Q-E-Z or Q-E-S, depending, but it's pronounced Kates. And it's used to describe the coming Messiah's reign in Isaiah 9 to describe the eternity of his reign, that it will have no end. It means that it will perpetually continue forever and ever and ever. It will have no end. But then it's the word that the prophet Daniel, now Daniel came after Habakkuk. Isaiah came before Habakkuk. Isaiah, um, excuse me, Daniel wrote after Habakkuk. But it's the word that prophet Daniel will use later in a number of verses to describe the final end of days. Daniel 8, 19 says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter, at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. We know those prophecies in Daniel are talking about the end of days, the final end of this epic of human history. And I believe it's, it's possibly this verse. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure, but it seems very similar, and it's possible that the Apostle Peter had this verse in mind when he wrote 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. Now, that's a lot of reading, but just bear with me for just a second. It says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and again, this is the Apostle Peter writing, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See that same kind of language, hastening that day of the Lord. That's that same thing that he's talking about in Habakkuk 2. I think it's really cool. Again, sometimes, so in Scripture, what we see oftentimes, some of you know this, is that a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament have dual, if not multiple, layers of fulfillment. Some of you may have heard that before. So, as we continue through these next verses, what I want to make sure that we don't do is like file this away in some sort of historic bin, right? To say, oh, that's, that only had to do with the nation of Israel back in 600 B.C. And it had to do, now it's relevant and it's important that we get that context but that whole, and that, that's a real event, like I said. But if we look at that event and we say, yeah, that, that's in the past, that maybe we can get some spiritual lessons from that, some examples to learn from, that's really not the entirety of it. Because it doesn't hit us like I think God wants it to hit us now, today, in the culture that we're in. We need to see this as it truly is. It's a prophecy for our time it's relevant to us personally today, and its ultimate fulfillment is still to come. Again, based on that word, based on how that's coming across, based on that cross-reference to Daniel, what this is talking about when we start talking about 
Babylon. We see Babylon represented in the book of Revelation. It's a, the, it's a type and a precursor of the final judgment on the world. Now, again, there's lots of examples throughout Scripture that kind of, I don't know how much to get into that. I have some notes here. (laughs) I hope I don't bore everybody with this. I just want to make sure that we understand, again, the way prophecy works in Scripture, multiple levels of fulfillment, multiple applications while it is a historical event, how does that translate into today and these end times that we're living in? And it's the same, this is the idea. So the Apostle Peter, in that same book, before this verse that we just read, in 11 and 13, talking about the heavens and the earth and the new heavens and the new earth and the end of days there, he says before earlier in that chapter, He says, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. See, the flood was not only an actual historical event that had an actual fulfillment, it also serves as a prophetic warning and example for the end of days. Does that make sense? Or is are we following me? I hope that's making sense. But so the flood actually happened. It was something that, that God used to judge the world at that time. It was fulfilled. It's been completed. But it also serves as a warning for what's coming for a warning of what's coming. And so it is here in Habakkuk. That's what we're going to be getting into next week, these woes that God is going to pronounce against the nation of Babylon. That even though God is going to use the Chaldeans and these Babylonian people to judge his people, there is a judgment coming for them as well. But let's get into chapter um, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4. And this is God's going on to describe and answer Habakkuk's complaint. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. His death, excuse me, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And that's verse 4 and 5. So God is describing this person. It's a description of the king of Babylon. He says his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. This wicked, prideful king. And it's compared to the righteous one who is admonished to live by faith. So if we're talking about the king of Babylon, follow with me. We're talking about who? The big famous one, the golden image, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So if we, if we kind of look at Nebuchadnezzar, he starts to epitomize and personify this description. Now, again, this is many years before this actually occurred. And we see this great picture also when we contrast 
the life of Daniel with that of Nebuchadnezzar. So we have these two. So we have one that's puffed up in his pride. His soul's not upright within him. But then we have, but the righteous shall live by his faith. We've talked about the importance of that verse throughout Scripture. But in that comparison, what I see, Daniel, the slave, who was made a ruler. That's what God promises us. He says he's going to give us the kingdom that we're his servants now, but Daniel, the slave, who was made a ruler. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, this mighty king who was made a madman. Daniel, inspired by the Spirit of God to interpret dreams. And then we see Nebuchadnezzar, who's tortured by night terrors. Daniel, he's presented as a counselor and savior to his people. Nebuchadnezzar is presented as a fool and one who would even murder God's faithful. Remember that with Daniel's friends. He was going to throw them into that fire, or he did throw them into that fiery furnace. He tried to kill them. It didn't work out. Daniel persecuted for worshiping the one true God, but then Nebuchadnezzar demanding to, um, to be worshiped as God at one point. So this starts to kind of flesh out that comparison of what God is showing Habakkuk in this prophecy. We see Daniel again living and prospering in faith, Nebuchadnezzar falling in his pride. And this verse, as we've touched on a number of times, is really the key the key to this book, but it's also, as with prophet Dan- the prophet Daniel, the key to living and thriving in this fallen world. And we're going to be going through Daniel on the, the men's and women's Bible studies. And again, Daniel's life, how can we learn from that to see as he lived by his faith, how that played out in his life? Only faith can unlock the prison of doubt, anxiety, confusion, and discouragement. And only faith can free us from the dreadful rituals of legalism and self-righteousness. And it's only by faith that we can truly please our Father. Now, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, we have a copy of the book of Habakkuk that was um, recovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And where it says above wine, wine is a traitor. That word wine is translated wealth in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But so in either case, we see things that are often used as a substitute for reliance upon God. And that's something else we saw with with Nebuchadnezzar. But what are these two things? It's either alcohol or money. Things used to feel better, to indulge ourselves, as opposed to trusting in God for our emotional and mental well-being or that of our daily provision. In the life of Nebuchadnezzar, we saw he had this insatiable appetite for empire, for wealth, victory, and personal greatness. And he even serves as a type of the Antichrist throughout the book of Daniel. And most glaringly, most glaringly as that example, was when he constructed an image of himself of solid gold nearly 100 feet tall, can you imagine, so what's that, what's the Sunflower Building downtown? How many stories is it, like four, five? This is like a 10-story building. That's how big a statue that Nebuchadnezzar made of himself of solid gold. And not only did he make the image, he said, if you don't worship the image that I've made to give myself glory, you will be burned alive. 
So again, it's that, that, that type of the Antichrist is. And, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar confesses God at one point. He's not, I don't really know where he's at in terms of his faith or if he's saved or, or kind of where he is in all that. But what I do know is that in our culture, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is heavy stuff. I don't blame him. I would be crying if I was, <laughs> if I didn't know Jesus, I'd be crying. I'm sure he does. <laughs> he will. He will. But the hard truth is, guys, in our culture, in our culture, we have so many little Nebuchadnezzars running around, don't we? And I think the hard thing for me is that I maybe recognize a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in myself. You know, building their own little petty kingdoms, raising counterfeit golden images of themselves, of which they can stand up and say, as Nebuchadnezzar said at one point, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And we hear that statement, and we know that right after that, the kingdom was taken from Nebuchadnezzar, and he had to wander as a madman out in the wilderness. said his fingernails grew like bird claws, and he got these long, matted hair, and he was just this madman running around out there. Right after that statement, he says, I have built by my power for my glory and majesty. Now, instead of Babylon, we could insert Instagram or my business, or my ministry, or any other manner of things. Is this not what I've done for my great glory and majesty? But what they, what I may fail to realize is that God is listening. Remember those, those, those angels were listening. They were waiting for him to say that. God is listening, and the time of reckoning is coming. Certainly that's such a, you know, technology and everything has given people such an ability to do this, to build their kingdom, to gather followers, to, to build monuments to themselves, just as Nebuchadnezzar was able to do. But how many Daniels are there today who worship the Lord three times a day, every single day? And he didn't do that in some kind of legalistic way, but it was a way for him to come back and to be grounded in the midst of that perverted and idolatrous country. And culture that he was in. Those of us who would refuse to be defiled with the delicacies of this world. Remember that when he was a young man, he said, I'm not going to take the king's delicacies because they're unclean. They don't, they don't, that doesn't, that's not going to put me where I want to be with my Lord. How many of us are fully prepared and eager to walk into the lion's den? I don't picture Daniel walking into the lion's den hesitantly. I think he walked in boldly. I think he walked in with faith and courage. And that's what living in faith means. To be one who follows only Jesus Christ, who confesses him only as their Lord and Savior, regardless of the consequences. Those who aren't trying to gain followers, but who are looking to follow the one true God to the cross. And Habakkuk was apparently one such man. One who had a special and intimate relationship with his Savior. And we talked about, you know, right at the beginning, the things that he's saying to God, they sound almost disrespectful. They sound 
um, like he's not having faith in some ways. But again, he's coming to God in, a, in this really personal, intimate, raw way. I think that's always where we need to be if we're going to come to God, not necessarily in anger or doubt or whatever, but to be sincere and honest and open. Guys, he knows our heart anyway. He made us. He knows us inside and out. We can't fake it with God. The question is, do we come to him or do we come to something else? Do we go to him or do we go to the world? And because of that heart that he had, he not only heard, but allowed what he heard to change him. That's a big one, too. That's a big one for, you know, we're in a great fellowship. We hear the church, we hear the truth all the time. Are we allowing that truth to change us and change our, our habits, our priorities? Changing what I see with Habakkuk and what we'll see in this as, as we get into the, the rest of um, this book is that he changes from one who has questions to one who has answers. Man, that's, that's it, right? That's, change, that's, that's our whole salvation. Changing from one who's questioning to one who has answers for ourselves, for our own peace of mind, but also for others outside. He changes from one who was confused about God's will and his plan to one who would receive and deliver the very words of God. And that's the type of change he wants to see in each and every one of us. It's the change wrought by faith in him alone. Now again, next week in chapter 2, it's these five woes that God pronounces against Babylon. And I can imagine that this was like music to Habakkuk's ears. Because <laughs> it starts out and he's like, I think it was pretty, pretty amazing. And I'm not saying God's always going to tell us what we want to hear. But again, if we stay engaged, if we wait on him, if we have this intimate relationship with him, God will surprise us. I mean, I think, I think that these, as we get into these, and there's some great verses in that next section too. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for this evening and, and thank you for, this, for your word. Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to hear from you. And we want to share what we hear. And, and I know that's your desire too. That's just the simplicity of it, Lord, that good news that you share with us. Help us to be willing and ready and prepared to share when it's appropriate to share. As you tell us, to give, us, to give others um, a reason for the faith that's in us. And we worship you and praise you tonight in Jesus' name.